uh, we're going to focus on the second chapter of James tonight. And uh, this is a uh, tremendous, tremendous wealth of information and uh, um, just some guidelines for basic Christian living that are in here. And I promise you, if you'll listen to me for the next 40 minutes, that we'll give you something um, that if you will put it into practice and apply it, it will stimulate and bring about spiritual growth in your life. Chapter number two of James, the theme of the whole chapter, and we're going to cover the entire chapter tonight, chapter number two. If I had to uh, give you a theme for chapter two in one sentence, it would be this. Immature believers talk about their beliefs, but the mature person lives his beliefs. Immature people talk about what they believe, but spiritually mature people live what they believe. Because hearing God's Word and talking about God's Word can never substitute for doing God's Word. And you read as you begin reading uh, James chapter 2 that uh, James creates kind of a, a scenario here of a test where two people come into a worship service and uh, a rich man and a poor man came in and they were going to see how that they were treated. And a key thing that we discover from that is the way that we behave towards people indicates what we really believe about God. Now, I want to say that again because uh, it, it rolled off my tongue real easy, but there is a tremendous depth of truth to this statement. The way we behave towards people indicates what we really believe about God. It's not so much what you got bat, uh, rattling around in your head there. It's the way that you act and behave towards people that displays what you really believe about God. First John chapter 4 and verse 20 says this. It says, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I want you to think about that verse right there. It says that if you cannot love your brother whom you have seen, how can you love, or in other words, you cannot love God whom you have not seen? A lot of people have ideas and beliefs about God, and they identify themselves based on what rolls around in their head. But the Bible makes it clear that your faith in Jesus Christ is displayed or put on display based on how you behave towards people. In, in verses 1 through 9 of chapter 2, My brethren, have ye not faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons? For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring in goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and ye have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by which ye are called? If ye fulfill, notice the word here, the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. So the Bible say, tells us here, or shows us here, that if we show favoritism, if we show favoritism based on wealth or based on class, the Bible says we're transgressors of the law because the law says, love thy neighbor as thyself. And uh, so 
one thing here we know, first of all, is that Jesus did not show favoritism. He didn't look on the outward man. He looked in the heart. And if we're going to be like Jesus, we can't show favoritism based on a person's socioeconomic or ethnic background. Jesus saw potential in the lives of sinners. When he saw Peter, who was impetuous and up and down, he said, I see you as a rock. When he saw Matthew, who was a publican and a sinner, Jesus saw him down the road as a faithful disciple. When Jesus saw the woman at the well, she was a harlot. She was a sinner. But Jesus saw her as an instrument for reaping a great harvest of souls. Jesus didn't look at people based on their past. Jesus looked at people based on their future. The problem is we tend to judge people based on what they've been to this point. Amen. Not on their future. Jesus was a friend to sinners. He never approved of their sins, but he was a friend to sinners. And uh, God's grace, if we're going to operate in God's grace, we have to ignore national and ethnic differences. We can't show favoritism based on a person's background. God also ignores social differences. He treated masters and slaves the same way. The rich and the poor are all alike to God. And so if we're going to operate in God's grace, we have to show the exact same tendencies of not showing favoritism based on social, ethnic, cultural, uh, financial background. Can I get an amen? Anybody want to operate in the grace of Jesus Christ? This is about being a mature Christian. Not about what you know, it's about how you deal with people and how you treat people. God's grace forces us to relate to people on the basis of God's plan and not on the basis of human merit or someone's social status. In verse 8, it says, If ye fulfill the royal law, this royal law, which is, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And we call that the golden rule. Here it's referred to as the royal law. We saw the wedding recently of uh, a wedding for the royal family, those that are kings and uh, that have the genetics that put them in a position of prominence in their area. But this law is called a royal law. And the reason it's called a royal law is that this law rules all the other laws. Think about that with me. Royal means in charge. And the royal law is the law that transcends or basically rules the other laws. And if you think about all the laws that we have in our culture, basically in any society, all the hundreds of laws, there would be absolutely no need for those laws if everybody operated according to the royal law. If every person loved their neighbor as their self, there would not be need for all these majority of complex laws. And it's even true in the Old Testament. The Bible says that by loving God with all of our heart and loving our neighbor as ourself, we fulfill all the law and the prophets. Think about that. If every person practiced the royal law, there would be no need for the many other laws. And uh, in uh, Romans chapter 13 and 10, it says, Love does, not harm, does no harm to its neighbor. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Neighbor, Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Let me read that again. That's Romans 13.10. Love does no harm to its neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. And when we love other people and treat them with respect and treat them with the grace of and operate with them through God's grace that's being extended to them, then we are fulfilling the law. And, of course, we know in the story of the man that came to Jesus and said, Who is my neighbor? Jesus told the story of uh, the Good Samaritan. And basically the moral of the story is the question is not who is my neighbor, but the question should be to whom can I be a neighbor? To whom can I show love? To whom can I show mercy? And if I am trying to be real selective about who my neighbor is, then I am being a respecter of persons. 
But in, 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 in the totally flip side of the equation, the way of operating as a mature Christian is where is someone that I can extend God's grace and mercy to? You show me a person like that and I'll show you somebody who is growing as a Christian. Amen? And it's also a royal law, the royal law, because it makes you a king. Hatred makes you a slave, but love sets you free from selfishness and enables you to reign like kings. Praise the Lord. Amen. So here it says, if you disobey this law to love your neighbor as yourself, you're a transgressor of the entire law. If I disobey one law, I'm disobeying them all. So being a Christian, let me just make sure you get this, doesn't mean that you have to like everybody and be best buddies with them and agree with them on everything. What it means Christian love means treating others the way God has treated you. Come on, think of that. Treating others with the grace that God has shown to you. Come on, I'll ride that horse for a little bit. Treating others with the patience that God has shown with you. Showing others the mercy that God has shown to you. Being long-suffering with others the way God has been long-suffering with you. That's what being a Christian is. It doesn't mean you have to be best buddies with everybody on the planet. But it means you treat people with the grace that God has shown to you. Because being a Christian, being a child of God, is not about what you say or what you know. But it's about what you do. And this is one of the greatest ways that you can show it in the way that you treat people. Because you really only believe as much as the Bible, of the Bible as you practice. If you don't practice it, you may pretend that you believe it or think that you believe it. But you don't believe it until you put it into practice. Is that the truth? Yes. Amen. And, and uh, we must practice this important rule, this most important rule, to love our neighbor as ourself. Man, I, I could just say that saying a hundred times until you get that point. Think about it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Love your neighbor. Well, who's my neighbor? The guy next door? No. Anybody can be your neighbor. Love them. Amen? As you love yourself, treat them the way that you would want to be treated. Uh, verse number 12, it says, So speak ye, and so do as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. For he shall have judgment without mercy that hath showed no mercy, and mercy rejoiceth against judgment. We use this verse of Scripture on Sunday to indicate we access God's mercy by showing mercy to other people. And uh, sometimes we see God's mercy and justice, and we see them maybe as competitors. Because on the one hand, God's justice says we must be judged. God's mercy says you're not going to be uh, dealt with based on what you have done. But God's going to extend mercy. But they're not competitors because they come from the same God. And they can't come from the same source. The difference between uh, mercy and justice is where God finds repentance and faith, he is going to show mercy. Praise the Lord. But where he finds rebellion and unbelief, he must administer justice or judgment. That's the same God that gives both justice and mercy. And it's based on repentance and faith or rebellion and unbelief. And the key here to these two verses is if we forgive our brothers, we have the kind of heart that is going to be open towards God's forgiveness. If our heart of forgiveness is closed off, then we are going to be closed off to the forgiveness of God as well. Notice he says, being judged by the law of liberty in verse 12. The law of liberty. Why does he call it the law of liberty? I mean, when you think about the law, you think maybe more of restriction or parameters or framework. But he calls it the law of liberty. I explained to you uh, a couple, two or three weeks ago about how that uh, the parameters of our backyard, the fence, because of my child's immaturity, that fence is not a restriction, but that fence creates an opportunity for liberty. Because without that fence, I cannot let my daughter enjoy our backyard. But because of that fence, she is able to take advantage of what she's been blessed with, which is the backyard. And so the parameters create 
liberty for her. And when we obey God's law, it frees us from sin and allows us to walk in liberty. And also the law prepares us for liberty, just like a child has to learn rules and regulations in the process of becoming mature enough to handle the decisions and the demands of life. Now, there is a, a, uh, uh, a difference between liberty and license. And some people think that operating in the law of liberty or operating in God's grace and mercy means that they have a license to do whatever they want to do and live however they want to live. And that couldn't be further from the truth. What is license? License is doing whatever I want to do, and it's the worst kind of bondage. Amen? But liberty means the freedom to be all that I can be in Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. And so verses 1 through 13, I just wanted to get through that passage, that, that portion real quick, share with you. It, mean, it basically is saying that our beliefs should control our behavior. And our conduct should show or display or reveal our convictions. And one of the tests of, this re- of the reality of our faith is the way that we treat people. It's how our faith is displayed and demonstrated. Now, I want to look at the, next, uh, the, the last part, verses 14 through 26, and focus in on this a little bit. Uh, because this is an important passage uh, uh, from the Bible. And it shows us three different types of faith. Now, uh, a few weeks ago when my wife uh, shared on Mother's Day, she kind of took some of these points and shared them with you. But I want to flesh them out for you. That there are three types of faith that are described in verses 14 through 26. And it gives kind of an emphasis on people who think that they have faith, but their faith is false faith. And I think it's important for us to recognize that there is such a thing as false faith. And uh, the people who have false faith don't realize they have false faith. They think they have real faith. Are you guys with me now? So this is important for us to know about. Because I don't want to be deceived. Amen? Anybody else feel that way? You just don't, you don't like to be lied to. And I certainly don't want to deceive myself. I've done that before. I've deceived myself before, and I feel foolish later when I come to grips with it. And so being deceived about whether or not your faith is real is something we don't want. And so hopefully we can help you come through that. And and uh, it, it talks about the three types of faith. And, of course, faith is a key doctrine in the Christian life. Sinners are saved by faith. Believers walk by faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the Bible even says in one place that whatever we do apart from faith is sin. And so we've got to be, as Christians and believers, operating in this thing called faith. I want to say a statement right now. And uh, I want you to try to memorize this statement so that you get. This is kind of the, the nutshell of everything I want to say to, tonight. And uh, if you memorize this statement or if you get this point right now, well, if you get it when I say it, then you can go ahead and go home because that's what I'm going to be trying to prove to you here or impress upon you. And if you don't get it, listen carefully. Here's the statement. You ready? Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but faith is obeying in spite of consequence. Listen to that again. Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but real faith is obeying in spite of consequences. See, the difference is, you see the difference because you have to obey and you have to take a risk and you have to step out in order to operate in real faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, it's called the the great faith chapter, by faith, uh, Noah built an ark to the saving of his family, by faith. Abraham left his homeland by faith. talks about all these figures in, in Hebrews chapter 11 that operated by faith. But as you read through that passage, you get this point right now. As you read through Hebrews chapter 11, it always says, by faith they did this. The point is, by faith they acted. By faith they stepped out in obedience regardless of the consequences. It doesn't say, by faith, they sat and believed for a miracle. 
It says, by faith they, in obedience, stepped out and built an ark or left their homeland or gave a more excellent sacrifice. It was always by faith they acted on God's word no matter what the price, no matter what the consequences. Because real faith is not believing despite uh, the evidence, but real faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Man, faith is not a feeling that we work up. And, uh, uh, you know, I know I, I, I would hear preaching about faith as a young person. I, was, I want faith. I want faith in God. And so I'm going to sit here. I'm going to close my eyes. And, and I'll picture the old rugged cross or I'll picture the empty tomb. And I'm going to say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. I believe, 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 I believe. I have faith. I'm full of faith. No, faith is not a feeling that you conjure up, but it is a confidence that God's Word is true and a conviction that when you act on God's Word, it'll bring blessings. Amen? That's what faith is. Believing God's Word is true and believing that when you act on God's Word, the end result of that action will be that God will bless you. I want God's blessings in my life. Amen? And God's blessings are not just stuff. It's not just things. It's not just money. But there are many, many ways in which God's blessings show up in my life. And faith is believing that by acting on God's word, blessings will come my direction. And uh, so the passage here in verses 14 through 26 focuses on the relationship between faith and works. It starts with verse 14. What doth it profit my brethren, though a man say he hath faith? And have not works. Can faith save him? Everybody say good question. So it's, it's asking a question here. A person who has faith but no works. The huge question is, does that kind of faith save someone? And then the flip side of the question is, do you have to perform good works to be saved? Hmm, that's a good question because the Bible says we're not saved by works, lest any man should boast. So the real question is, what kind of faith really saves a person? This is a good question to have an answer to because above all else, I want to be saved. What kind of faith really saves a person? So James addresses these questions by describing three different types of faith. And unfortunately, only one of these three types of faith has the power to save you. The other two are false faiths that some people operate in, never realizing that it's not saving faith. Pay attention. Pay attention. The first time, kind in verses 14 through 17, I want to read it for you. And then I'll tell you what kind of faith it is. What did the prophet, my brethren, though a man say he hath faith and hath not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. So the first type of faith is dead faith. Dead faith. Faith that is based on what you think and even what you say, but it is not followed up by any action. And we can tell here from this passage that there were people in the early church that are being addressed here that claimed to have saving faith, but they didn't possess salvation. And people, here's a characteristic of dead faith. Dead faith is the kind of faith that substitutes words for deeds. People that know to say the right thing, but they don't do anything. All right? That's dead faith. They all know, the, they know all the right words. They even know all the right scripture verses. They've been schooled in saying all the right things at the right times. But their walk does not measure up to their talk. They can talk a lot, but they don't do anything. And James gives the example here of a poor man who comes into their midst who is out of clothing. He's naked. He doesn't have sufficient clothing, and he is lacking food. 
And the person with dead faith does what? He says a few pious words. Boy, I hope you hope you find some clothes. Man, I hope you find find something warm to wear. And boy, I hope you get some good food. I really hope the best for you. I wish the best for you. But he did nothing to meet the needs. And we know that food and clothing are basic needs. And we have an obligation to help meet the basic needs of individuals. See, understand that that uh, helping a person in need is an expression of love. It's displaying the love and the grace of God. How many have ever been helped by God when you were in a bad way, in a bad time? I can be a neighbor by finding someone who's in a position or a condition like I was in and displaying God's mercy and grace to them. Amen? Because faith works by love. First John 3 Verses 17 and 18. First John chapter 3, verse 17. This is a witness to what James is saying here. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Mm. Let us not love with words just saying things, but in action and in truth. Think about this now. You remember the story of the Good Samaritan? He was beaten, left bleeding, and half dead. He was beat half to death. And while he lay on the side of the road, three people came by. The first that came by, I believe, was a priest. He was schooled in the law of God. He knew truth, didn't he? And the Levite came by. He also was schooled in the law. He knew the truth. And I guarantee you, if you challenged either the priest or the Levite, challenged their beliefs, they would defend their faith. Right? But they walked by this Samaritan bleeding beside them on the road. I've got a meeting to go to. I'm busy today. I don't have any stuff to help this guy. Perhaps the next guy can do it. They're willing to defend their faith, but they had an excellent opportunity to display their faith. And they missed the chance to display it. There are a lot of people who with their mouth or their tongue are willing to defend their faith. But they're not willing to, with their actions, display their faith in God. Lord, help us to understand that our real faith is displayed in the way that we treat people and the way that we show love towards people. Amen. Verse 14 is letting us know that a kind of faith that is never displayed with practical works cannot save a person because it's dead faith. Faith that doesn't show is dead faith. It's not a matter of agreeing to a creed. It's not a matter of believing ABC. It's not a matter of, hey, I'm an apostolic. I believe Acts 2.38. I believe the Jesus name message and the oneness of God. If you want to, I'll challenge you to a duel about the truth that I believe. Understand that truth is important. important, but, but, But truth alone and faith alone that's not displayed in practical works cannot save a person. It's intellectual faith. It's dead faith. It's dead faith. So a belief or a declaration of faith that doesn't result in a changed life and in good works is a false declaration. God help us, Lord Jesus, get the truth of the word today. That our faith in God, if it doesn't change us, is not going to save us. Faith in God has to produce a change. And part of that change is good works, kindness, showing love towards one another, and reaching out to people that are in need. Amen? In verse 17 it says, Faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Faith, alone, without works, is what we call dead faith. Because guess what? Real faith, is never alone. <laughs> Real faith doesn't hang out by itself. Real faith is always accompanied. It's not a solo act. 
True faith always brings life, and life always produces good works. So true faith won't stay alone. True faith is always going to be accompanied by good works. Let me just uh, uh, share this with you. Human beings are body, soul, and spirit. Body, soul, and spirit. And the soul of a man is the real person. Let me just kind of break this down for you once again so you get it. This right here is my body. It's a container. It's not me. It's just my cage. It's my microphone. It's the way I communicate. It's the way I express myself with my mouth, with my body language. All of this is expressing the real me which is on the inside. The real me is my soul. My soul is eternal. And it is made up of my mind, my will, and my emotions. That's the real person. Everybody got that? I think we shared this with you a couple weeks ago. Your mind or your intellect or your thoughts. Your emotions which are your feelings. The things that cause you to be excited. The things that cause you to be angry. The things that cause you to be moved. And your will. That is the part of you that decides what you're going to do. And puts it in action. The mind, the will, and the emotions is the real person. Because guess what? My hand is doing something crazy right now. But it's doing it because my will has told it to do that. My arm did not decide to operate capriciously or arbitrarily from my body. Everybody got that? And so everything that you do is a product of your soul, your mind, will, and emotions. Amen. Yes. Your soul and your heart. You know, the, um, uh, in, in scriptural language, the heart obviously is not talking about the physical blood pumping mechanism. It's, it's talking about the seat of your emotions. And so I would say that uh, when the Bible talks about your heart, it's talking about one-third of your soul, the emotional part, the emotion. So you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your emotions. And uh, so... That's what I would say. The heart maybe is referring to perhaps one-third of a person's soul. Now, the other question is, what's the difference between the soul and the spirit? Ah, that's a good one. Because they're both invisible. And so there, there's, there's a certain amount of overlap. But the spirit is the part of, the, of man that is able to conjunct with God. What's a conjunction? Conjunction is a connecting word. Our spirit is a connecting force. It connects my soul to God. See, this is kind of a neat study because God's original plan was that Adam would be submitted to God and that God would have control and influence over him through his spirit. And when Adam sinned, the Bible says, "...in the the day that you eat thereof you shall surely die." Well, he didn't physically die that day, but there was a spiritual death that happened. He died spiritually. Just like before you were filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible describes you this way, dead in trespasses and sins. And you say, how was I dead? I was up walking around. I was moving. I was making decisions. I was studying. I was doing all this stuff. How could I be dead? What was dead was the conjunction part. There was no way for you to connect with God, so God couldn't speak to you, and God couldn't influence you and order your steps. But when a person is born of the Spirit, what happens? That conjunctive part comes to life, and all of a sudden there's a connection. Because when man became a sinner, God's plan was that it would follow in order, that God would order our lives by influencing our spirit. And our spirit then would, would, would give direction to our soul, our mind, will, and emotions. And our soul, in turn, would direct our physical body or our flesh in submission to our soul, which was in submission to our spirit, which is in submission to God. But when man became a sinner, that connection was broken and the soul had to take over. And so now who rules most lives is the soul, the mind, will, and emotions. That means I'll do what I want to do. I'll be what I want to be. Whatever sounds good to me, whatever I think, whatever I feel, follow your heart. Follow your heart. Don't follow your heart. Your heart is deceitful above all things. 
desperately wicked. That's what the Bible says. So you follow your heart, you're in for a bad, bad problem. Amen? And that's the problem. Some people follow their heart instead of following the Word of God. But the, and, and it's almost impossible to stop following your heart and following the Word of God until you reestablish the conjunction, which is the Spirit of God. That's why you must be born of the Spirit. That's why you must be, you got to be, you must be, got to be born again. Amen. Praise the Lord. So a person with dead faith is a person who has an intellectual experience with God. It's all about what they think and what they know about God. You've got to beware of mere intellectual faith because you can't come in contact with Christ and remain the same. Dead faith is counterfeit faith. And the reason it's so dangerous is because it lulls a person into a false confidence of eternal life. And you've met them before. Don't name names or look in any direction, but you've met people before who have conscious or intellectual faith. And if you talk to them, they know the Bible. They know scriptures. They know all the right things to say when the discussion comes up. But when you look at their life, it's all in their head. It's not coming out in their actions. It's not being put on display. And the sad thing about it is because they've got this mental affirmation, which they think is faith, they believe that they're saved. But the reality is it's not real faith. It's dead faith. Because dead faith is faith that's not accompanied by a display through our flesh and the works of God. Good works. Amen? Uh, uh, dead faith is faith that is alone. Amen? So this is one kind of faith that's a counterfeit faith. And some people uh, fall prey to thinking they have real faith when really they have dead faith. The next kind of faith is in verse 18 and 19. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Verse 19. Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. It's kind of, you know, I think, if I'm not mistaken here in this verse, James is being a little bit of a smart aleck. He's saying, oh, you believe in one God. You got it settled in your heart. You believe in one God. You're doing good. Guess what? The devils also believe. Demons also believe in one God. And they tremble. So the second type of faith that is a counterfeit faith, we're going to call it demonic faith or the faith of devils. You say, you saying I have a faith of devils? No, I want to describe the kind of faith that devils have is the same kind of faith that some people have, and they believe that that faith is going to save them. Let's talk about what that faith means. So, first of all, let's establish there's such a thing as demons. There are evil spirits in the world, fallen angels that do the beck and call of Satan and his minions in his kingdom, there are demons. And these demons have faith. They believe in the existence of God. There's not a single demon who is an atheist. There is not a single demon who is even an agnostic. They are fully convinced of the reality of God. They live in a spirit realm, and they know that God exists. Not only that, but they believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Look at what the Bible says in Mark chapter 3 and uh, verse 11. It's an example here of the fact that devils believe. Mark 3 and 11 says, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. The evil spirits knew who Jesus was before his disciples even knew who he was. The demons knew who Jesus was. Not only that, but they ascribed and embraced an understanding of Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4, where the Bible says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, 
is one. And so the demons believed in the oneness of God. The demons believed in the deity, the manifestation of God through Christ Jesus. Not only did they believe, but the Bible says they trembled or shuddered. Gave them goosebumps and the creeps, if you would. When they thought about the power of God, when they thought about the reality, they definitely believed in God. And it caused them to have an emotional response. James is saying the demons also believe. And not only do they just believe, but they have an emotional response to their faith in God. Let me make this plain to you. You can believe in God and even have an emotional response to God. But it's still not saving faith alone. Emotional response. Emotional response. Because demons are affected in their emotions, they believe and tremble. So the reality is a person can be enlightened in his mind and even stirred in his heart, yet remain lost. Saving faith requires something more than an affirmation and an emotional response. It involves something that can be seen and recognized. It requires a changed life. I want to stop here and ride this for just a second because it disturbs me. It really disturbs me as a pastor, as a shepherd. When I see people come to church and they're believers, and when the ministry of the Word goes forth, when the Spirit starts to move, When God speaks through the man of God, and suddenly because of this divine collusion of truth and spirit, they begin to have an emotional response. And I see them. Tears well up. They begin to pray. They begin to respond to what they feel because of what they believe. And then I watch them. And they go out and they keep living the same way that they've been living before. The part that bothers me and stirs my soul is they're deceived into thinking because on one hand they believe and on another hand, on the other hand, they can have this emotional response based on their faith in the house of God amongst other believers that God is somehow sanctioning their lifestyle and God is okay with the way that they live. I want to tell you today that that is demonic faith. You believe and tremble. You believe and have a response to God, but it does not change your conduct. It doesn't change the things that you do and the way that you act and what you pursue. Because real faith results in a changed life. I wish somebody would get the word right now. Because real faith is going to make you a brand new creature. It's going to change everything about you. You can't stay the same way that you are when you have an encounter with God. I can't walk up to a to a line of current running 220 and grab it and not be changed. It's going to be it's going to change my situation. And when you come in contact with God, you can't leave the same way. And if you leave the same way and keep doing the same things and acting the same way, you are being deceived into believing that you have real faith. But real faith, after you jump up and down, is going to affect the way you walk on Monday and where you go on Tuesday and what you look at on Wednesday and who you hang out with on Thursday. Amen? It's going to affect your lifestyle. We're talking about the difference between false faith and real faith. Praise God. James 2.18 says, Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. He wasn't being mouthy or cocky or challenging someone to a duel. He was saying here, in effect, you will see my faith by the change in my life and by the way that I live and the way that I treat people. You will see my faith on display by my changed life. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Amen? So we receive new life from God, and then we are commissioned to reveal that life to others. And the final part of the chapter is where James reveals the third kind of faith. And this is the kind of faith you want. 
You don't want dead faith and you don't want the faith that devils have, but you want dynamic faith, faith that changes your life. And that's verses 20 through 26. It talks about dynamic faith. What is that dynamic faith is real, powerful faith that results in a changed life. We know that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So real faith has to be based on the word of God. And, but by, dynamic faith is not only based on God's, worth, wor, um, God's word, but it involves the whole man. So I don't know if you've been listening, but maybe you got this point. Dead faith involves the mind. Demonic faith involves the mind and the emotions. Dynamic faith involves all three. The mind, the emotions, and the will. The mind, the will, and the emotions. Are are you getting this point? Dead faith only affects what you think. Demonic faith only only affects what you think and feel. But this dynamic faith affects what you think, feel, and do. It's about changing your conduct and turning you into a person whose life is changed. Amen. Praise God. Life change is not about just changing the way that I think, but it's about changing my conduct as well. So what happens is my mind understands the truth, my heart desires the truth, and the will is what acts upon the truth. Remember, Hebrews chapter 11, those champions of faith were champions of faith because they acted on what they believed. Remember my saying that I gave you? Faith is not believing in spite of evidence, but faith is obeying in spite of consequences. Amen. If Hebrew 11 is a faith chapter, then that statement is true. Faith is not just believing in spite of evidence, but f- true faith uh, is obeying in spite of consequences. Are you reminding, uh, remembering this right now? Anybody memorizing this? True faith uh, is not just uh, believing in spite of evidence, but true faith is obeying in spite of circumstances. Believing that what God said is true and by acting upon it i'm going to be blessed and true saving faith leads to action it's not just an intellectual contemplation oh yes i believe that it's what i I think some people actually believe that that well i'm saved by faith what does that mean one day i was sitting there and i decided you know what i believe in god i'm saved thank god that's awesome i believe in god now you believe in god too what up? We're Christians. Let's hang out sometime. Put a fish on your car. Wear a chain around your neck with a cross. Put one of those NOTW things. I believe. I'm a believer. But faith is not just intellectual contemplation. And it's also not just emotional brokenness. These are important parts of faith. These are a part of the process of faith. But faith, true faith, saving faith, is that intellectual contemplation and affirmation, the emotional brokenness, repentance, and obedience on part of the will. And this obedience is not one random isolated event. It continues through the whole life of the believer. And then uh, we see here that uh, in verses uh, 23 through 26 verse 23 says scripture was fulfilled which said abraham believed god and it was imputed or counted unto him for righteousness and he was called the friend of god ye see then how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only likewise also was not rahab the harlot justified by works when she had received the messenger and had sent them out another way For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. Uses two examples from the Old Testament. The example of Abraham and the example of of, uh, Rahab to describe or to illustrate the point that faith is displayed by works. And without their display of works, there would have been no evidence of faith and they would not have been saved so he uses these two bible characters abraham and rahab and i think it's neat that he uses these two because they're kind of polar opposites abraham was a godly man and rahab was well she was a harlot she was a sinner a sinful woman abraham was described as a friend of god but rahab 
was a member of a group of people that were marked as enemies of God. So you have on one hand Abraham, a righteous man or a good man, a good man who is a friend of God. Rahab, a sinful woman who is among the enemies of God. Yet both of them exercise this dynamic saving faith that James is trying to explain to us that has the power to save. Both of them operated in saving faith. The Bible says, here it says, Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him for righteousness or counted to him for righteousness. And uh, in Genesis 15, verse 5 and 6, the Bible says God took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens, count the stars if you can count them. So shall your offspring be. It says, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. So this imputed or counted as righteousness is a financial term. It means to put it in somebody's account. What it's basically saying is Abraham's spiritual bank book was empty. His, his spiritual bank account was empty. But when he trusted the word of God... What God did is he put righteousness in Abraham's account. Abraham didn't work for it. It was a gift from God. He was declared righteous because of his faith in God. And that's the message. If you read Romans chapter 4, that's the message of Romans chapter 4, is that uh, Abraham believed, and because of his faith, he was counted as being righteous. He was justified. And this word justification is an important biblical word. It means where, where God declares a sinner righteous. Not based on what the sinner does, but based on what Jesus did at the cross. That's justification. Right? And guess what? It happens immediately. And God does all the work. The sinner doesn't do the work. God does the work. That's what justification is. We are justified by faith. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. Justification is not a process. It's an act. It's not something the sinner does, but it's what God does for the sinner. You got that point? Here's the next question. How can you tell justification has happened? Has a person been justified? Yes or no? How do you tell? Abraham's story is an illustration that lets us know that the justified person has a changed life and obeys God's will. That's how you tell somebody's been justified. You, tell, you can tell that they've been justified by the fact that their life is changed. Abraham's faith was demonstrated by his works. The fact that Abraham had been justified by his faith in God, in turn, was made manifest by his works. Was Abraham saved when, when, when God then later told him, take your son, your only son, go offer him on uh, the altar as a sacrifice to me? So he goes and, and does it. Well, he was in the process of doing it. He has his knife raised. He has his beloved son tied up. And as he was raising the knife, God stopped him. Abraham, Abraham, stop. Now I know, now I know that you have trust and faith in me. Was it that Abraham was saved by obeying God's difficult command to offer his son? Listen, you've got to get this point. Was Abraham saved because he did what God told him to do? The reality is his obedience proved that he was already saved. His faith was made manifest by his works his faith was proved by his works his faith was made complete by what he did look at verse 22 see seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works was faith made perfect by the works was his faith completed so abraham wasn't saved by this action but he obeyed and this action was a display of the fact that he was already saved. He was not saved by faith plus works, but he was saved by a faith that works. Faith that makes a change and transformation. So we're justified before God by faith, and we're justified before men by works. God declares us righteous, but our works demonstrates what God has done. D.L. Moody said it this way, every Bible should be bound up in shoe leather. 
That means people should read your life and see that God's work has been done. There is no greater, there is no greater example of the gospel than a changed life. Amen. A changed, a transformed life is a fantastic message of truth. So dynamic faith obeys God and proves itself in daily life and through works. The second illustration was that of Rahab. And the story of Rahab was she was a citizen of the city of Jericho. And God had promised unto Joshua the city. So Joshua was coming with the children of Israel. But before he goes to Jericho, he sends spies in to check out the land and come back and give a report. So the spies go into Jericho. And they stay at the house of Rahab, the harlot, who was also probably an innkeeper uh, that people would come in and stay. And so they stayed there. They were in disguise, not wanting to be discovered. And somehow, through conversation, Rahab discovers or uses her intuition to learn that these are Hebrews. These are Jewish spies. And somewhere... Within the city of Jericho, conversation and discussion had caused people to whisper to one another that the children of Israel or the Hebrew people are coming, and there's a lot of them, and God is with them because God went before them and opened the Red Sea, and God went before them and fought for them in battles, and word had spread about this God, Jehovah. And Rahab, when she discovered that these men were Jews, she asked them she said when you come back will you save me and my family the question is what did rahab do first of all she protected these men and shuttled them out in a way where they would not be discovered well guess what if they had been discovered rahab would have been killed you understand and she affirmed that she believed what God had said and what God was going to do. He was going to give the city of Jericho to the Hebrew people. She heard that somewhere, and she believed that. And because she believed that, she acted on it. And she said, I'm, I'm going to take care of these guys. I want to be on the good side of these guys. And when they left, they promised that they would save her family. The Bible says that the people there in Jericho had heard the report and their hearts melted within them. But she responded with her mind, emotions, and will. She did something about it. I've heard that these Hebrew people are God's people and God's going to deliver the city into their hands. So guess what? I got my chance. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to protect these guys. I'm going to make a request of them. I'm going to ferret them out of the city safely. She risked her own life to protect those Jewish spies and she further risked her life by sharing the good news of the deliverance that they had promised to her and her household with members of her family. At any point, if she had been discovered, her life probably would have been taken from her. And an awesome part of the story is that this immoral woman, Rahab, who had been a harlot, ended up going with the Hebrew people after the walls fell, the walls collapsed. The Hebrew people came in and slaughtered the, the, the people of Jericho. But there was one portion of the wall where it didn't collapse because there was a cord, scarlet cord coming out of it. And when the, the uh, 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 pillagers came in to ransack the, the city, they protected this household, and they didn't go in. They didn't kill the members of this. Everybody in the household was saved. And so Rahab became a part, and her family became a part of the Jewish people. She was not a Jew. She was an unbeliever. She was, a, uh, uh, she was an outsider. But the Bible lets us know that she ended up marrying into Israel and became one of the ancestors of Jesus Christ. Through the lineage of this harlot named Rahab, Jesus Christ was born. Think about it. On the one hand, Abraham, a good man, a friend of God. On the other hand, uh, Rahab, a harlot, an enemy of God. But because they believed and their belief caused them to do action, there was something that happened to them and there was righteousness imputed unto them because of their, fact, uh, because of their faith that was put in action. Her faith wasn't dead. 
It didn't just affect her mind. Her faith wasn't demonic. It didn't just affect her mind and her emotions. It was dynamic because her mind knew the truth. Her heart was stirred by the word that she heard. And her will acted on the truth. And her faith saved her. And she proved her faith by her works. And think about it. She just had a little bit of information, a little snippet of truth. She acted on it. We have the entire Bible. We have preacher after preacher after preacher. We've heard the message. She hadn't even heard about Jesus. Jesus hadn't even come along yet. We've heard about Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit to guide us. And guess what? If you're a maturing Christian, you're not going to fall into the trap of thinking that what you believe or think is going to take you to heaven or what you believe and affects you emotionally is going to take you to heaven. But it's what you believe and what you feel and what you act on because faith is not believing in spite of the evidence, but faith is obeying in spite of of the consequences. Amen. Praise the Lord. Why don't we stand together right now? It's very important for us as Christians to examine our hearts to make sure that we possess true saving faith. St. 